Welcome to Conservation Conversations, the podcast where we discuss emerging technologies, global trends, and the future of biodiversity conservation with some of the world's leading experts. I'm your host, Sean O'Brien, President and CEO of NatureServe, where we've been working for 50 years to protect endangered species and ecosystems. With this podcast, we want to introduce our audience to some of today's key players in conservation and share the amazing work being done around the globe to protect our planet's rich biodiversity. Welcome to Conservation Conversations with Sean O'Brien. On this podcast, I'm privileged to talk with some of the most interesting people working in conservation. At NatureServe, we leverage the power of data, science, and technology to conserve biodiversity. And today I'm talking with Annie Novak, who is best known for, well, it really depends on what your interests are, what she's known for. She's an urban farmer, she's an aeroecologist, and we'll talk more about that later. She's a birder, she's an athlete, and really an all-around super person. So Annie, welcome to the show. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, well, I gave a little context on you. What I really like to do is have my guests tell their own story. Um, as an ecologist whose parents were generally supportive, but still sort of, you know, what are you going to do with that degree? Um, I like giving listeners who are considering working in conservation in any capacity a variety of stories to have so that they can think about how this may you know, affect them and how this might actually be a viable career to work in cool things like urban agriculture. So let's yeah, I know I'd be it. delighted to. And I, I, I want to start with that super person. I'll tell you how to be a super person. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was kind of you to say. Um, yeah, I, uh, I think, you know, you were joking when you said, you know, your parents looked at your degree and said, what are you going to do? I, I got involved in urban agriculture and agriculture generally, uh, about 15 or so, 17 years ago now. And my family had a similar reaction. Um, I grew up in the Midwest, so becoming a farmer wasn't that wild of a career path, but for where I grew up in the Midwest and what I grew up doing, uh, there was no reason I should have gotten involved with plants at all. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I think the, the neat thing about where I started and then all the things that have evolved that you described is, um, that a lot of my career has been defined by following sort of the narrative of things from start to finish. Um, when I was an undergrad, I worked, I was a student of human geography and a lot of that work is focused on these really interesting intersees between people and cultures and politics and location and geography. Um, and I took a lot of that way of thinking about the world forward um, into the work that I do. So while my initial interest definitely started in literally farming, working on farms, learning about plants, talking to farmers, um, getting the basics down of botany and soil science and all that. Um, where it's evolved to is, you know, all the way up the ecological scale. As you mentioned, aeroecology is a interest of mine, um, non-professional-ish interest of mine. And that relationship I have to what's living up in the sky, what's the ecosystem of the sky, um, particularly focused on birds and migratory birds and more particular, um, came very much just out of that sense of curiosity and wanting to sort of understand how things intersect in the natural world. And you've stitched this into a career and a, and a living. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know the other part of your question was how does one do that? And I, I would say where I was really lucky um, is when, both before I was an undergrad and then also a, a big part of my undergraduate career, um, I don't know if you consider it a career, my time as an undergrad, was very much under the umbrella of um, the philosophy of Joseph Campbell, which most simply put is follow your bliss. Um, and I by no means want that to sound 
woo-woo or like a shortcut. Um, I grew up in a very studious, hardworking, hard-driven family of really smart, primarily women, plus my dad. And so when I went to school and was throwing around this concept of follow your bliss, I did not please my mom to hear that. I think what's more meant by it was um, if you're curious about something and if you care about something, um, work your way, apprentice your way towards that expertise. And whether that's an academic apprenticeship uh, or working you know, under the guidance of a professional in the field, um, I've been very fortunate again to um, be able to make space for myself around, underneath, with um, incredibly smart, brilliant people. And then, of course, the actual spaces where the things I'm curious about take place. So I could read a book, I could talk to someone, I could work with someone, I could work under someone, I could study with someone, I can also go out into that landscape and learn it top to bottom. Um, and because of the thing that I'm curious about, which is you know, ecologies and commodity chain analysis and um, social spaces around food um, and plants. Um, yeah, I've been able, I think, to find the work, the paid, do, uh, you know, duly appropriate legal employment to, to get to learn more about those things. Um, yeah. So it's been a winding path with a very clear North Star. Um, I don't know that the boat has always sailed where I wanted it to go, but I've definitely always been clear, like where the lighthouses were, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, sometimes there's a cloud and, uh, in front and of yeah, the it, star. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, every now and again, you know, it actually, it's sort of a bad comparison. It's a bad metaphor because, um, you know, stars are one of the things we're losing quickly. Um, but yeah, I, I, um, I, I think that's been, you know, it's, and it's not easy, I guess, if again, I was going to turn this to like a piece of advice because I get emails often from folks curious, how they can get involved in similar work. Um, it, it's it's always clearer in hindsight, um, but the truth right. is that I've always been adamant about sticking to the things I care about and working with the people I'd like to learn from, um, first and foremost, above any other choice in in pursuing something. I'm sure that this is true in other fields, but I know that I feel incredibly fortunate in working in conservation to be surrounded by people who essentially did you know follow their bliss or follow their passion for nature and for conservation. And to work in a in an organization where everybody is really driving for the same thing and really believes in the mission is really just a privilege and it's a wonderful thing. And it makes day-to-day -day work and makes the challenges of work so much more bearable. Um, and then at the end of the day, you know, you feel like you did something. Yeah, I'm really glad to hear you say that, Sean. And I I mean, I think it's one of the things that you know, you're mentioning this in a professional context, but I have found that even moving outside of an organization like NatureServe and its employees or, or where I work full-time for New York Botanical Garden, um, I'm struck that folks who, whether they're backyard birders or just hobbyist gardeners or they're pursuing it, you know, um, professionally elsewhere, it is it is true what you said. People do seem to care about it in a whole and real way. Mm -hmm. um, that I don't necessarily see in, in all other professions. Um, so yes, agreed. Yeah. So I'm gonna shift gears a little bit. So one of the things that I think is interesting is you talked about you're from sort of the middle part of the country and more potentially rural upbringing than where you live now. And you're all about nature and conservation and, and birds and foodways and things like that. But you're also a pretty dedicated urbanite. And I, I like that sort of contrast because you get to do the rooftop gardening and things like that. But I'm also sort of just like generally curious about 
um, some nature experience that you've had in the city, right? So like maybe maybe we have to keep Central Park out of it. Um, my little story is the other day I saw uh, nature in action when I saw a red-tailed hawk snatch a rat off the streets of DC. And I was like, this is amazing. Like <laughs> in some weird way, that's nature. It's no, I mean, it's not weird at all. That's, that's a great, that is a fabulous man. If you're going to have a spark birding experience, watching a raptor kill something sure gets you hooked. <laughs> Especially if it's the rat that's um, on the sidewalk. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, you're, so where I grew, I grew up in Evanston, which is a, a suburb outside of Chicago. That's really a fascinating place. I mean, it's demographically diverse. It's uh, the architecture is beautiful. It's a city that's really dedicated to its tree plantings. Um, so whether I was conscious of it or not, um, being in an environment that had um, a lot of blurry lines between um, the artificial man-made landscape and the natural landscape was, was, you know, it was very robust. And I, as a child, um, just the way we were raised, we spent a lot of time outside. I mean, we weren't television watching, we weren't video game playing, we were no, no house keys get out and play until dusk family. And I think what I re recognized when I moved to New York, I moved to New York because I think, you know, any, anyone who lives here probably has this moment when in their early life where they say, ah, oh, this is, you know, this is the place for me. And you sort of set your sights on it. Um, for me, it's a place that says yes. And I was really committed to this idea that, um, you know, even without a direct clarity of what it was that I wanted from age 17 to 18, when I made this jump, um, I assumed that no matter what kooky idea I came up with, New York City would respond robustly, um, as has been the case, which is great. Um, so once I did figure out my path, um, which is now urban agriculture, um, you're right to point out that there is a bit of contrarian um, character to that. But what I would suggest is that, um, I'll point out two things. One is that urban agriculture, um, it's a recent history where that would sound, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it doesn't matter. It's a, it's a recent history where that would sound strange um, because right. the reality is most cities of course, had agriculture either embedded directly in them or uh, very proximate. Um, the peri-urban space of agriculture is as recent in New York City as a century and change ago. Um, so for me, putting a farm, particularly a neighborhood like Greenpoint, I, the Eagle Street Rooftop Farm, which is the green roof farm that I've now run for 11 years, um, is in an area of Brooklyn called Greenpoint, which was all owned by one dude who had a large farm. And that, I can look at maps out of our... Um, library system that date back to like the 1860s and still show a lot of that pasture land and marshland, et cetera. So in terms of how do you find nature in the city or what's an antidote about it? Um, agriculture to me was my foray into nature. It's how I got to know <laughs> that nature existed. But, um, and I still like to use it as a tool because people love to talk about vegetables and how to grow them. I like to use it as a tool to sort of lure people in, you know, sit down, break bread with me, grow a carrot. And now let's talk about, you know, the inherent microorganism ecosystem of soil or uh, these native trees. Um, what I, the reason I stayed in New York, the reason I love New York City is that it is ecologically breathtaking. Um, we have almost every type of habitat you could possibly ask for from old growth forests to estuaries, um, to wetlands, um, to beautiful dunes. And I, of all cities in the world, we have the second longest coastline 
Hong Kong has us beat, but New York City alone has more coastline combined than Boston, San Francisco. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of all the other major cities with coastlines. We have 570 something miles worth because we're a city of islands. And when I come off the rooftop and I'm next to East River and I'm looking out over that expanse, um, that's what I'm conscious of is that we as a city have a very direct, very concrete relationship to the waterways around this. Um, our stormwater system and the way we address water management in New York City profoundly, immediately and deeply affects every single piece of that coastline. Um, and I think discovering that and then learning more about the whales and the pumpkin seed fish and the seals and all the incredible shorebirds that live in that landscape really, really made me commit to New York. Um, that is truly special. That's really cool. And I, in all of my life, I've never heard anybody talk about those aspects of New York, uh, the length of shoreline that there are dunes you know, we're all aware that it's surrounded by water or a lot of it, but um, we don't really think that that means wetlands. And, you know, recently in the news, there was a whale in the river and like, you don't really think about that all the time. And um, it's really exciting and it's a really cool lens on New York. And uh, next time I'm allowed in, <laughs> whenever that is, um, I will definitely look at New York in a new way. That's, that's exciting. So thank you for that um, new perspective. Um, I do want to come back to the aeroecology idea that we that I mentioned at the beginning and um, that we have talked about a little bit. I'm really fascinated by it in so many different ways. Um, one of them is that I love that it's a it's a technology hack, right? People started collecting data for one reason. The data were openly available online, and people said, "Hey, you know what? We could do something else with this data, and we could figure out something really cool." And uh, I love that that part of it, but I also love just the, the the ecology and the science that you can learn from it. So, tell tell everybody what does it mean and why is it important? Sure, I mean, I so aeroecology is a pretty recently coined word. I think it was developed or came up first at a conference in 2017. Um, and that refers to this space above us in which a lot of um, animals, uh, grains of pollen, um, bacteria, fungi participate um, in an ecosystem. And I think recognition of the airspace as an ecosystem, the same way that, you know, I just mentioned about 70 different kinds of ecosystems in New York City, but recognizing that landscape as ecosystem allows us to study it, think about it differently and protect it, which is really important because we are very much changing um, the air above and around us. So that's aeroecology. And I got interested in it as a space because I love birds and wanted to know more about um, their migratory lives in particular. Um, radar ornithology, which is um, sort of this not necessarily directly connected, but also fascinating aspect of looking at the landscape above us in the air. Um, radar ornithology is like specifically using radar to observe migratory bird patterns and also insects and also pollen. Um, and then to aggregate that data and use it in, in for lots of different things. But one of the ways that I'm most excited about is to help study population change over time, particularly with birds. And your listeners might remember um, if they're um, beautiful conservationists like us, that there was this incredible paper that came out, um, oh, just a short time ago before 2020 happened, uh, 3 billion birds have been lost um, since the 1970s. And 
to me, that sounds very, very high. Um, and if that's something people want to learn more about, 3billionbirds.org um, discusses the paper in full. And a lot of that research and information um, came out of the ability to use radar and radar ornithology to take a look at those populations. Um, so yeah, it's a cool time to be alive. If you're interested in birds, or if you want to know what's up above you, <laughs> this is, as you mentioned, the technology, the technology hack um, that's happening right now in scientific communities that's really fantastic. And for, for me, who's a non-academically, um, non-academic and non-professional scientist, but a person who's deeply interested in it and likes to participate in it, I find that all the tools that are available and held in common between academics, professionals, and non-academic, non-professionals is makes it incredible. I mean, I feel so lucky that I can just do a lot of the work that I'm interested in on my phone when I want, just by pulling up, you know, a radar app or birdcast.org, et cetera. So you just um, talked about uh, academically trained or formally trained scientists versus um, non-formally trained. Um, we're getting into the, the uh, hazards of the way we use language. Um, and I think about it often sitting here outside of uh, Washington, um, politicians are always talking about ordinary Americans and you know regular people. And uh, so I tend to think of those words as sort of to, to mean um, non, uh, well, non-politicians, um, but it sort of translates over to talking about the ideas of um, quote unquote, ordinary people doing science or people contributing to the scientific enterprise because they're just, they're interested and it's their, it may be their hobby as opposed to their career, but their contribution is still significant and important. And I understand that you have a lot of uh, strong feelings about this concept of this, the so-called citizen scientist and that that's not a pejorative term in any way. And it's not intended to diminish the science because you put the word citizen in front of it. It's intended, it's just a, um, it's another kind of scientist. Yeah, no, I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great thought you picked up, Sean. I, you know, something that's really important to think about with the way we talk about science is looking at the history um, of who its practitioners were, what information they've been able to create, who they relied upon for their data points, et cetera. So the notion that science, you know, is a sort of, um, siloed, um, specialized, hierarchical area in which only certain people can operate is a pretty recent creation. Mm -hmm. um, and when it's existed in prior iterations, whether it was a thousand years ago or 1500 years ago, um, again, that had a lot to do, I think, with exclusion more than it did inclusion. Um, the idea that you can have certain people belong to an academy and other people cannot, and by people, I often mean people of color or women, um, is, is you know, sort of at the heart of, I think, where this specialization comes from. So that's one thing I, I would address. The other aspect of it is the positive side, which is that, you know, folks who dedicate time, energy, intellect um, to pursuing the scientific method and pursuing specialized studies and science um, of different disciplines, you know, absolutely deserve every recognition that, that, that comes to them for it. And, you know, bless their hearts for going forward. I, years ago had an opportunity to pursue a PhD program and ended up deferring that in order to start the rooftop farm that I now run. And that was a very difficult decision because it was an opportunity to either, um, you know, hone in on and have all of these incredible intellectual resources at my disposal to answer some questions I had, or I could jump up on a rooftop and start trying to answer the same questions and see where that led me. And I think where it all circles back um, for me is that, you know, and I'm learning this particularly in my involvement in the 
bird world, <laughs> looking at aeroecology, et cetera, is that for the most part, any opportunity I have as a you know, quote unquote, ordinary citizen and non, a non-trained scientist um, to pull data and to help contribute my own efforts to the data collection of other people is only better for everyone. Um, so just as an example, you mentioned citizen science. Um, you can volunteer to work for an organization um, or an institution. You can also very specifically become a citizen scientist, which is, um, you know, one example I could use is that with New York City Audubon, which is an organization I volunteer for, um, we help, I help with data collection of birds as they collide with glass during the migration season. Um, about We know about 90,000 birds die every year from striking glass. It's very particular species of birds. Um, all birds, are, you know, all different species of birds see the world differently. That's an important thing to think about. Like, I don't see the world the same way as a chimp. Um, a warbler doesn't see the world the same way as a hawk. Um, so uh, what I get to do is once a week during these migration periods, so for several weeks in spring and fall, I will I will walk the same loop around the same set of buildings and look for bird collisions and then accurately describe where it was, was it, you know, what condition it was in, what species it was. That's data collection. And that goes into a larger pool of other citizen scientists' contributions. And then that gets passed up to New York City Audubon, who then in turn use that to do incredibly effective things like pass legislation to create the Bird Safe Building Act in New York City. So I think points of entry like that are really important. Um, and then the other thing I, I definitely um, feel very strongly about, as you mentioned, is that you know I work at the New York Botanical Garden with um, children pre-K through fifth grade primarily, but we work with students all the way up to age 18 and then volunteers all the way up to 90. And one thing that I'm always struck by is that when you classify someone's work in the gardening space as hobbyist, um, it's excluding years of observations on the ground. Um, you know, the work they're doing is in its own way field work. And if I was, for example, an anthropologist and I went to go visit a community of people and I said, tell me all about your traditions with plants, um, I would be harvesting data from people who are doing the same level of intellectual work and incredible data collection as a lot of the people I work with. So that's one thing to consider. Um, and then I'm also always aware that my students, um, not universally, but often, um, many of them are just by virtue of circumstance excluded from even being often the offer the opportunity to pursue something like a PhD. So when I'm teaching them science, technology, engineering, arts, and math, when I'm doing the STEAM curricula um, through the work we teach at the Botanical Garden, I wanna keep in mind that those students probably want to become a full-blown engineer and they probably have all of the talent in the world to become you know, mm -hmm. a PhD in physics, but I can only, I want to teach them enough about science so that no matter where they end up in the world, thinking about the world through the lens of science is part of how they view the world. And God knows if we do that with more students, yeah. we would barely be in the situation we're in. We need more young people coming up, educated with that lens because our country is crumbling it's because we don't think enough about thinking steam. Skills <laughs> um, so you can yeah. analyze things that people say and actually make conclusions that are based on facts, um, which is- Exactly, I mean, amen to that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so actually, you know, talking about the work that you do with the bird collisions, I'm thinking about birders in general and eBird. It's one of the biggest data sets that scientists have on birds in the whole, in the whole world. And it's incredibly valuable. And uh, where I used to work at Montpelier, we used uh, master naturalists quite regularly in work that we were doing in the forests. And those are people who, as not their vocation, but as their avocation, 
have learned a lot about nature and the plants of the area and um, are scientists of, of the nature of that area. And um, we took a, a big, uh, it was very beneficial to have access to the master naturalists. And at NatureServe, you know, we have trained scientists in the field collecting data all across the continent, but very often they're working with the kinds of volunteers you're talking about because people will say, hey, I want to help the natural heritage program in my state collect data and I have some time. And so let me go out in the field with them and I'll do whatever they need me to do to, to improve the, the data that they're collecting. So we actually use citizen science in quotes, right? Um, in our formal data at NatureServe, but we also regularly make use of things like um, eBird and iNaturalist data to supplement the um, the more formal data. Formal probably is the wrong word, but um, the the data that's collected by people who are doing it as part of their job. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, yeah. And it adds a lot of texture, a lot of context. Yes. Yes. Exactly. No, I'm so glad to hear you say that, and I think. It's something that, you know, as folks are trying to think about the interests that they have and, you know, I think part of what draws people to citizen science is for some people it's that they have an expertise and they want to express it somewhere. Um, for some people, it's a sense of contribution, which, you know, at the front of our conversation, you mentioned how rewarding it is to be in your professional landscape surrounded by people who do have that sense of contribution and passion. Um, I think, you know, for others, I wouldn't set aside the fact that if you have a rigorous mind, if you like to be organized, it can be very satisfying as a non-scientist to participate in the scientific process <laughs> because inherently you have to check certain boxes, you know, and I, I think about that um, with all of these, this whole community of like self-help books and like organizing your life and the Marie Kondo, like if you want to Marie Kondo your life, learn, learn the scientific method and get in on some science because it just tidies the mind. <laughs> and on the flip side, think of all of the people we, we raise up, you know, Albert Einstein and his mismatched socks and what have you. It's a very free and playful space to, to loosen up and to think about question the world around you. And then, you know, dive back to that rigor. I was talking about figure out how it all works. <laughs> One of the questions I always like to ask people, not only like how did they get where they are, but, you know, you're now um, fully ensconced in your path and you're looking out to the future. You're looking to your North Star. And at the end of your, I don't want to, you're the kind of person who's not going to have an end of your career. You're going to sort of, autodidact and auto direct yourself to probably be contributing in various ways right up to the very end. So when you get to the, to the end and you look back, what is, what will be the thing that will make you feel like you've been successful in your life? Oh, Sean, hidden with the heavy questions. <laughs> <laughs> I lulled you into a sense of security and now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a curveball. No, it's a, it's an important question. I guess something to think about. I, I will say people, when I have people email, typically younger folks and say, how did you get into the work? You actually have a phone call tomorrow with someone literally asking, how did you, how, how are you, you? Um, one thing to consider which will answer your question, I promise, is, um, you know, the way I was raised uh, very much was focused on giving back and doing good. And it's a nice theme that we're hitting upon in that 
you know, I think a lot of folks involved in conservation at some point probably had that switch flipped in their mind because you, you to do the kind of work that we do where you're thinking outside of the anthropocentric and you're thinking about long-term things like, you know, you're asking what will happen at the end of my life. My work isn't centered around the end of my life. My work is centered around humankind's <laughs> the time on earth. You know, I'm thinking at a much larger scale and and whatever I can do to contribute to that is really important to me. So I mentioned that only because, um, you know, that is very rewarding. It's a really, as I was saying before, it's fun to participate in science. It's also very lovely to participate in a space where you deprioritize humans, you um, consider your, your, your own part of a larger context of living on this planet. Um, and I, I don't know, I mean, I guess since I centered that pretty young, there was actually a book I read, which if you're listening and you have children, it's called Miss Rumpheus. It's by an American folk artist named Barbara Cooney. And it's the story of a woman who moves up to um, Maine and she pursues all sorts of different adventures. She goes to Fiji and this is a children's picture book. And she works at a library and she walks around a conservatory in the winter and gets to smell the tropical plants while it's snowing. And then in the end, she's lying ill and sort of gray haired and thinking, what can I do to make the world a better place? And she hops on her bicycle and she starts to sew lupin seeds. And so even though she's passed, the coast of Maine now, of course, is rife with these, I'll say, invasive lupins. And it's actually based on a, a true story. This is a real woman. And the thing that I read, and you know, it's a beautiful book. So what struck me as a kid is just an exquisite story. But I swear to God, Sean, I have walked in a tropical conservatory in the winter. I have gone to Fiji. Um, I have been a librarian and now I am sowing lupin seeds. Although I'm sowing native plants. And um, and I think, you know, that that's I don't know that I need to think any further than that. Like, um, yeah, I'd love to retire. Let's clarify that. I'd love to sit around and read books for a while. But yeah, I think the kind of work that I do and, and for most most people involved in gardening and birding, it's you you want to do it for the rest of your life. And simply because you can only get better and you can only do better. So, right. well, I mean, what does retirement look like for you? Did I wolf that question? Is that... <laughs> <laughs> What no, do you want to do with your last decade, it's, Sean? Uh, <laughs> it's a, um, like a lot of people in history, the history of like civilization, quote unquote, um, people were working for retirement and then, you know, they sat around and read books or whatever, or watched TV or watched football or something. Um, but like people who have a passion like you do, birding, gardening, things like that, those are lifetime. You have made them into things that allow you to have a career and make money um, so that you can do other things, um, but they'll never stop being part of who you are. Whereas other people who have different kinds of careers, at some point they actually will probably stop doing it. And then they might take up the gardening and the birding and mm. keep doing it um, to, to the end. Um, mm. Mm. So I, I think, it, that's the that's the privilege of having a career that is a passion as opposed to, you know, I just got this job and now I'm doing it. Yeah, I mean, it's I guess, you know, my sisters, I have two younger sisters who are both fantastic human beings and really intelligent and passionate. And one of them works in marketing and the other one is a doctor. And um, we have talked about this. I mean, I think I, I will say, though, what's amazing and makes me very happy is that the younger one who's in marketing now sends me videos and photographs of the birds that she's seen. And the older, uh, the doctor called me yesterday to show me that her husband had bought a raised vegetable gardening bed. So it's never too early and never too late to integrate gardening <laughs> and birding into your life in particular. 
Um, I mean, the joke, I guess, is on me because in my free time, when I'm not gardening or birding professionally, um, I'm trying to learn as much as I can about my own human health and medicine or marketing techniques so that people know about the work that I'm doing. So in the end of the day, between the three of us, we kind of have all bases covered. Um, but I, I probably at the heart of what you're saying is really just how important it is and how satisfying it is to do something that you love, which, you know, goes back to that quote I pulled from Joseph Campbell. I wish he had said it differently because failure of bliss sounds so fluffy. Um, but pursuing the thing that you care about and doing good in the world is, is yeah, that nexus is a real sweet spot. And I actually want to have that be our closing thought because I completely agree with you. And I think as we go into 2021 and we emerge from the pandemic and we think about how that's related to the conservation of biodiversity and our relation to the natural world. Um, and we've talked about how people can be involved in citizen science and actually contributing, even if it's not part of their career. Um, I think what you just said there is a perfect way to sort of start this year and be thinking about how we can you know, follow our bliss, do the things that we care about, and also give back at the same time and contribute to the, the betterment of our planet. So I want to thank you for uh, taking the time to be on the phone or on the Zoom with us today. And uh, I look forward to uh, going birding with you when we're allowed to be uh, out in the same space again. I would love that. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciated the time in this conversation. Excellent. Thank you. <laughs> uh, this has been Conservation Conversations with Sean O'Brien. Um, if you want to learn more about NatureServe, go to natureserve.org. And if you want to learn more about Annie, you can go to annienovak.wordpress.com and learn a little bit more about her work. Thanks for listening. <laughs>